0: with me to um, Matthew chapter 5, and we're actually going to go through the rest of chapter 5 from verse 13 all the way to verse 40-something. Um, Barb has been gone for two weeks, so I just want to make a big sermon for her to make up all the time that she missed, right? So this is what we're going to do today. We are in the Sermon in the Mount that we started on last, um, last Sunday, and last Sunday we spoke about that Beatitudes the eight blessings that Jesus has said, And we said that these are the rules of the kingdom of God, how a Christian should conduct himself. We said also last week that the Sermon on the Mount is probably a collection of different teachings that Jesus has given. And Matthew just put it together in the Sermon on the Mount from chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven. Now, these are a collective teaching of Christ, so they are extremely important. Pay attention to me, today we're going to do it differently. We're going to read one passage, then I'm going to give you some notes on that passage, then we move to the second passage, give you some notes on that passage, and that's how we're going to go through the rest of the chapter. If you feel like you need to interrupt me to ask questions, please do, because I want you to understand this. This is extremely important. This is the the way a Christian should conduct himself or herself in this world. So this is how we're going to do it. And again, if you, fee- if you have any questions, please let me know. We're going to start by reading Matthew 5, 13 to 14. Remember, Jesus just finished the Beatitudes at this point. Now he's telling his audience, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trembled, trembled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put, put, uh, put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who, are, who is in heaven. Jesus just again finished that beatitudes. Now Jesus is telling his audience that if you live by these eight beatitudes that I just said, you're gonna be both salt to the world and light to the world. Amen. Now, in the beatitude, it, it, it seems like Jesus is talking more passively. Blessed are those who that. Blessed are those who this. But now Jesus is talking more actively. Both. The salt and the light has active roles, not just passive roles, but active roles. Now, I don't know about you, but if you cook this wonderful, delicious meal and you forget to add the salt, it will taste not good at all, right? Salt is one of these things that is not very expensive, but without it, it's really gonna ruin the whole meal. And Jesus is saying, this is who a Christian is when it comes to their conduct, how they live their lives. In this world we are both the salt of this world and we are the light to the world Jesus said that a soul that lose its saltness will be thrown out and trampled underfoot now Jesus is not saying here that a Christian will lose his salvation he's not talking about maintaining salvation or losing salvation Jesus is not saying that you can lose your salvation to the point that God will throw you out of his kingdom Remember, the context is a Christian conduct, how a Christian should live his life. So when it says you're going to be thrown out and trembled, it's in that context. It's your witness, Jesus say, that the, the, the way you live your life will be worthless to this world if you do not show this world that you are different and that you live by the rules of the kingdom of God. Amen. And then Jesus said, let your light shine. Think about that. Jesus did not say that you and I are the source of the light, but we're the one who just in a way just have to allow this light to shine through us. Jesus is the light of the world and Jesus is in essence is saying let me shine through you. Let my conduct, my life just uh, be shown to this world through you. Now the last verse is this, in the same way Let your light shine before men that they may see the good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is important uh, because there is a lot of people who say that you can witness by your good deeds. You can just live a good Christian life and that's how you are evangelizing. I am opposing to that. There is no scripture for that. I'm not saying that Christians should go live an immortal life because if you're living an immortal life, I'm not even sure if you're a Christian. But what I'm saying is when it comes to witnessing, we have to open our mouth and tell people about Jesus. Good deeds and good conduct is out of the question important. We're not discussing that. But when it comes to witnessing, it is not by your good deeds. That's the foundation. Remember, if you don't live a good Christian life, good moral Christian life, you're like the salt that loses saltness. You have to be thrown out and trembled. It's, whatever you say is ineffective at that point. However, those who use good deeds as or argue that good deeds can be the way you tell people about Jesus. You don't have to use your words, only use your action. Use that verse as a reference, as a a biblical support to their argument. Hey, Jesus said here, let your light shine so that people can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. However, when it comes to understanding the scripture, context is key. What is the context here? Is Jesus talking about how a Christian should evangelize? No, Jesus is talking about how a Christian should live his life, right? And Jesus say when you live your, your Christian life, you are like the light of this world Let me shine through you so that people will see that you live differently and then they will glorify God So Jesus here is talking about the conduct of the Christian not the way of witnessing again your life should be blameless you should live a holy life above reproach there's no question about that but on top of that the fact that you live in a good life is not you're not a good witness because you live in a good life you guys are with me you're a good witness because you live in a good life but on top of that you're also vocalizing the message to those who don't know christ amen you are the salt and the light of the world number the second passage Matthew 5 17 to 20 now Jesus is saying do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly I will tell you until heaven and earth disappear not the smallest letter not at least a stroke of a pen will will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished therefore Anyone who set aside one of the least of the commandments and teaches them accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaching these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Amen? This is some hard stuff, man. Well, I tell you, if something wrong, That's right, that's right. More judgment. Now, Jesus here is saying this. Remember the context. Jesus, at this point, healing on the Sabbath he's touching the lepers remember that before in the past so it seems like in so many ways jesus is disregarding the law of god that the law by which that the pharisees um, were teaching and people were being taught says honor the sabbath don't do any work jesus is healing on the sabbath he's touching the lepers he's doing stuff that appears to be not in the law not to mention that right after this passage jesus starts saying this phrase I heard that it is said, but I say to you, right? So moving forward from here, Jesus is gonna appear to be like, maybe like adding or contradicting or like modifying the law. Of god and the prophets so jesus kind of like setting the foundation here he's saying i am not here to abolish, uh, to modify to change the law i am here to fulfill the law and jesus said that not the smallest letter which in greek will be the iota the eye which is the tiniest thing or a stroke of a pen sometimes there will be like a, an apostrophe or a comma that you can add on the top of the letter and jesus said think about this Heavens and earth will be removed, but not even the stroke that is on the top of the smallest letter in the law and the prophets will be changed Amen, this is just so powerful in a way That also tells you what Jesus and the Jews of that time understood and valued the scriptures the Old Testament the Torah and the prophets, right? remember at this time Um, The Jews had the temple, which was foundational to their religion. They had the word of God, right? But the temple at that point before obviously was demolished and they were taken captives. And during that time of captivity, when the Jews had pretty much nothing left for them, their land is gone, their temple is gone. had only the word of god so they clung to it so much and by the time jesus came the word of god was so valuable in the mind of the jewish person that they held it very very highly and jesus is confirming that he's not saying this is a bad thing he's saying this is an awesome thing i'm here to complete that law to fulfill it and jesus said this is how important the law is if you neglect the command that seems to be the least As a result of that, you will be the least in the kingdom of God. In other words, God's command, every single one of them is of the utmost importance. You should honor every single one of them. You should obey every single one of them to the point that even if heaven and earth will will be shaken and moved away, these very words will remain and you should honor and respect them. Amen? And now in verse 20, Jesus is setting up the stage for the rest of the chapter pretty much. He's saying, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And to build on that, Jesus, for the rest of the chapter, gives us six examples of how the Christian or the New Testament believer, The righteousness, the conduct here, we're talking conduct, you guys. We're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about how to, like, how you can become a Christian. We're talking about how a Christian should conduct himself in this world. Jesus gives six examples of how the righteousness of the New Testament believer should exceed that of the Pharisees of the Old Testament. The first example Jesus gives us is murder. That's verse 21 to 25 you have heard that it was said to the people of long ago you shall not murder and everyone who murders will be subject to judgment but I say but I tell you I say to you that anyone who's angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment again everyone or anyone who says to his brother or sister Raka like you're good for nothing kind of is answerable to the court and anyone who calls his brother you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell these are like hard words you mean? but remember unless your righteousness jesus said exceed that of the pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven therefore you if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has some something against you leave your gift there in front of the altar can't you just just put it on and get it done and then save time you don't have to come back for it nope jesus said don't do that you leave your gift don't even offer it and first go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift Settle the matter quickly with your adversary who is uh, who is taking you to court, do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you pay the last penny. Now, I'm not sure if you heard of friend Bonnke, but he, was, he just passed away last week. This guy was the greatest evangelist of all time. He's my hero. If you've never heard of him, look him up. And I was listening to uh, him one time, and he was commenting on this phrase that Jesus said, verse 21, verse 22. I have heard, uh, you have heard it is said, but I say to you, and this is what Bonnke said. He said, every prophet, every prophet came in the Old Testament will always say, thus saith the Lord, right? Because the prophet is bringing the word of God. But Jesus did not come to say thus saith the Lord Jesus came to say I say to you this is extremely important because Jesus is not just like any other prophet he's the Lord himself he doesn't have to say thus says the Lord because he is the Lord he said I say to you and not only that look in that context see Jesus is contrasting his own word with the word of God I heard it was say do not murder who said don't murder God right in the Old Testament it's one of the Ten Commandments who gave the Ten Commandments to the human beings God Almighty, there's no question about it. Now look at this. Jesus is contrasting his own word with one of the Ten Commandments, which is definitely uttered by God. There's no question about it. God wrote it with his own finger on the tablets and gave it to Moses. In in an essence here, Jesus is making his word to be of equal, effective power and authority to you and me, just as the words of God in the Old Testament. Isn't that just mind-blowing? It is said, but I say to you, again, Jesus is contrasting and making his equal just as authoritative for you and me as the word of God in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, it mainly deals with when you actually commit an act of murder, Jesus said, "If it's if you commit murder, you're gonna be go, taken to judgment. Uh, the judge will look into your case, and if you're guilty, you're gonna be punished." Now, Jesus is elevating that to a whole new level. He's not just looking at the conduct; he's looking at the attitude of the heart. He's saying, "I don't want you just to get to the point that you." not murder anybody i want your heart attitude toward your brother or sister will be different because if you hate your brother or sister in when it comes to me in my eyes you're just as bad as the murderer Yeah. and that's what jesus is saying he's saying uh, in the new testament our righteousness has to exceed that of the pharisees it's not about how you act it's about how you think you guys are with me yeah. now this is living under god's grace i don't know is the grace standards higher or is the law standards higher The grace standards are higher right because in the old testament if you call somebody you fool no big deal Who, who cares there's no commandments for that right you nobody will come after you but in the new testament jesus said if you call your brother you fool you're worthy of hell fire amen and jesus is kind of like contrasting murder take to judgment in the old testament with three stages or three levels in the new testament if you hate your brother you're going to be worthy of the um of the local court if you call your brother you're good for nothing raka then you're going to go to the Sanhedrin, which is a higher court kind of like the supreme court and then if you say you fall then you are worthy of hell fire in that jewish culture context The word fool does not necessarily mean you are mentally incapable of processing information. This is not what Jesus is talking about. In the Jewish culture, being fool is to be immoral, is to deny the very existence of God, thus live immorally. In the book of Psalms, it says, the fool said in his heart, there is no God. And that's why they've lived their life uh in such an immoral way and jesus say if you if you call your brother that way that oh you are filthy you are immoral you're a fool in that sense then you are worthy of the fire of hell it's in red michael it's in red it's crazy i love when i whenever i meet with michael and he's he always say it's in red means this is the words of jesus this is extremely important and I, i love that phrase that he always brings now let's move on to example number two so example number one is the murderer example number two is adultery again just uh, extremely hard words from Jesus here verse 27 you have heard it was said you shall not commit adultery again one of the commandments in the Old Testament but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery is that past tense or is that present tense or is that future tense Past tense, you already did it. What I haven't, no, you have. When it comes to my standard, when it comes to my rules in my kingdom, you already did it. That's just kind of crazy. Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then Jesus said, this is like, Oh Jesus, you might not really mean it this way. Maybe you just like, uh, you know, it it cannot be that hard. Jesus said it's actually exactly that hard to the point that I'm gonna expect you that if your right eye causes you to stumble, then it's okay to plug it out and throw it away because it is better for you to enter into heaven maimed than to enter into hell with your full body. This is like extremely insanely serious obvious jesus here is not talking literally that he's expecting you to pluck your eyes out or you cut your hand out and be literally physically maimed because he's saying if your right eye offend you right there's no uh no reason that the right eye would offend you but the left eye wouldn't right so obviously jesus here is talking metaphorically this is a metaphor not literal but the point is metaphor is a figure of speech to indicate a message that is extremely important in the light of that metaphor. You guys are with me? So even though Jesus is not speaking literally that you have to block your eyes, what Jesus is saying is you do whatever it takes so that you don't do that anymore. I don't care what it costs you. I don't care how hard it's going to be. I don't care even if it gets to the point that you have to physically mutate yourself I am just expecting you in my kingdom that you're not going to live this way. Amen? Amen? This is just some serious. God is not kidding with sin, you guys, right? He, he, the same God in the Old Testament who would smoke people dead when they sin, has not changed. He is the same. The same god who hated sin in the old testament still hates sin in the new testament the fact that god is shown us grace through christ doesn't mean that he's more okay now more tolerable now with sin not at all he still has hard. he still has tough with sin and we need to respect his rules if we're going to live in his kingdom right right it's like when i tell micah and kezia and silas like this is my house You live here, you live by my rules, right? God is saying the same thing. This is my kingdom. And if you're gonna live in my kingdom, you live by my rules, not your own rules. Jesus did say you have excuses or whatever, you know, it's it's okay if you're single. It's okay if you're married. It's okay if your wife cannot have sex to look and lust. No excuse whatsoever, you look. You committed already adultery, and you need to do whatever it takes so you cannot fall into this sin again. No excuse, no exception. No. This is what it is. It's in red, right, Michael? I love that. So, we talked about how Jesus here is commanding us in his kingdom that our way of life should sur- surpass that. The righteousness, our righteousness, should surpass that of the Pharisees in murder, in uh, adultery, and now in divorce. Now, I don't know about you guys. I did not grow up in this country. I grew up in Egypt and Egypt is a very conservative culture to, to start with. It just even if you're not a born again believer in Egypt, you just live very morally conservative. That's just how everybody lives their lives. Before I came to the US, I came to the US at 22. Before I came, I don't recall ever hearing. Maybe I heard of one couple that got divorced. And i'm not talking about born again christians i'm talking about nominal christians who smoke who drink who live like whatever like live in the world who bribe who do all sorts of awful things i'm not just talking about like born again god-fearing christian but divorce is just not an option you grow up everybody's they stay together they just they might not be happy but they're still together you guys are with me and then i come here to the us and not just Christians who are born again, who love Jesus, are getting divorced and deal with divorce and marriage and remarriage very lightly. Pastors and ministers and people who like at the forefront of Christianity here in America, it's just like take marriage and divorce and remarriage very lightly. It's just, yeah, you know what? We tried it. it. Didn't work out. We got divorced. Now I'm in the market for a new girl or a new boy. It doesn't work this way, you guys. God take marriage and divorce extremely seriously. Look at what Jesus is telling us here. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of that victim of adultery. And anyone who marries, look at this, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These are harsh words, especially against the American Christianity. So sad, so sad. I mean, it seems like Christians in America on purpose just scratch these verses out of the Bible. Now, let's give us some cultural context to these commandments. In the Jewish culture, it was only the man who can divorce his wife. A wife cannot divorce her husband, but a husband can definitely divorce his wife. Now that changed in our time. So the fact that Jesus is speaking to guys and say, if you divorce your wife, you make her subject to committing adultery, it's, 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 you can work it both ways now because a wife can file for divorce, a husband can file for divorce. So this works both ways now. But in Jesus' times, it's only the husband who can divorce his wife. Number two. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 1, the scripture says, God says, God commanded Moses, if a man want to divorce his, her, his wife for indecency that he finds in her, then you make sure that he gives her a certificate of divorce. Now, why was that command in the Old Testament? Because God doesn't like divorce. He hates divorce as a matter of fact. And God wants divorce not to be a hasty thing. A man tells his wife, I divorce you, therefore it's over. God made that to be a process in the Old Testament. If you want to divorce your wife, there is a process. And you have to end with a certificate of divorce. So this way, all the parties are clear at the end of the day. If it's done, if it takes time, you can think about it as you're trying to go through this process but once the the certificate of divorce is issued then the divorce is finalized you guys are with me so that was a process given in the Old Testament primarily to protect the right of the woman that her husband cannot just divorce her whenever he wants for just saying one single word now now let's go deeper into the times of Jesus The Old Testament verse Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says this you can a man can divorce his wife if he finds something indecent about her or in her at the time of Jesus there was three different schools or three different ways of understanding what is something indecent in the wife there is the more conservative school called the school of Shammai that understood that something indecent to be purely sexual immorality. So if a man marries a woman who ended up being not virgin, or a man marries a woman and then she cheats on her husband uh, and go commits adultery, that school will say that is the something indecent It gives the man the right to divorce his wife. That was the most conservative school. There was a semi-liberal school called the School of Hillel that understood something indecent as pretty much any thing that the husband doesn't like much so if a wife will burn her dinner burn the food while she's cooking it they consider that something indecent and a man can divorce his wife for that and there was even an ultra liberal school the, the one rabbi called uh, akeba this guy he say, he taught that if a if a man find that there is another woman that is more attractive than his wife then that is something indecent in his wife and he can divorce her for that so that is the, the spectrum of the teaching on divorce during the time of Jesus now Jesus here is definitely siding with the most conservative uh, view which is something indecent in the Old Testament literally mean sexual immorality in the context of our verse here the idea that a wife goes out and cheat on her husband sleep with another man because she did that she broke the marriage the husband can divorce her, his wife now in our times a wife can divorce her husband therefore the same principle is still valid if a man go chees- cheats on his wife then the wife can divorce her husband for cheating on her you guys are with me now divorce is not command but is permitted So if a wife wanna forgive her husband or a husband wanna forgive his wife and try to work on the marriage, Jesus is okay with that. You don't have to divorce when the spouse cheat. But if the spouse cheat, you are free to divorce. You guys are with me? Now, with that, um, let's pause here and give you, generally speaking, when does the scripture allow divorce in the Bible? There is only two incidences in the scripture where divorce is permitted, only two only two not three not four not five only two and even the second incidence is not explicit there but it's implicit so it's not even like so clear like here but it's just pretty pretty obvious the first incidence is for sexual immorality that's the teaching of jesus throughout the gospels that a man can only divorce his wife except cannot divorce his wife except if she cheats on him if she commits sexual immorality that's the clear explicit excuse reason a man or a a woman can divorce their spouse. There's another reason that is not explicit, but it's implicit. And that's in 1 Corinthians 7 15. Paul talked about this. If a man and a wife are married, one of them become a Christian, the other one want to divorce the Christian spouse and want to quit the marriage, then, then the Christian spouse in that incidence is not obligated to fight for the marriage i mean think about it what's your options really You're, you got saved your wife didn't or the other way around the woman got saved the husband didn't and they're gonna divorce they go went to court filed for divorce what they what is the christian spouse gonna do there's absolutely nothing the christian spouse can do about that they can try to pray and stay in the marriage and fight for it but at the end of the day the unbelieving spouse is quitting the unbelieving spouse is quitting it doesn't say divorce here it just say if the Christian an unchristian spouse is leaving, then he's he's free to leave and the Christian spouse is free from any obligation. However, the word leave can definitely include divorce, and I'm comfortable with that. I don't feel like you know that makes that makes sense here. Now remarriage in the scripture is a totally different story the fact that you got divorced doesn't allow you to automatically go and remarry. there's only very very limited rules pretty much really for somebody to get remarried in the scripture there's two rules obviously in Romans chapter 7 if a spouse dies, then the widow or the widowers can go and get married there's no question about that in our teaching here what Jesus is saying is this if one of the spouses commit adultery then the innocent spouse is free to remarry the one who commit adultery jesus doesn't talk about them obviously they they, they're living in sin jesus is not discussing if they have the freedom to go get remarried or not but only the innocent spouse is allowed to get remarried in the scripture that's it only sexual immorality breaks the marriage and if sexual immorality happens then the innocent spouse can go and get remarried That's okay. That's the only exception to the rules here in in Matthew chapter 5. Let's read it together here, verse 32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, that is the exceptional clause right here, except for sexual immorality, make her a victim of adultery. What, What is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is saying that if you divorce your wife, remember only the man can divorce at that time, if you divorce your wife, she hasn't committed sexual immorality, the divorce is finalized, she goes and she marries another man, then she is committing adultery because the first marriage in God's eyes has not been broken because in God's eyes only sexual immorality breaks the marriage. You guys are with me? And anyone, anyone who marries a divorced woman, remember a wife cannot divorce, so it's Talk to male here. Jesus said, anyone who married a divorced woman, except for sexual immorality. Anyone who's divorced, except for sexual immorality. What does they do? Commit adultery. This is some harsh teachings. But this is the rules of the kingdom of God. Amen? Marriage and remarriage and divorce is not something you enter very lightly. This is extremely serious. If you're not willing to commit your life to that person, then don't commit your life to this person. But if you commit your life to that person, you are committing your life to that person. This is serious as a heart attack. Amen? Amen. In the Christian Mission Alliance, we do not believe that becoming a Christian absolves you from any of these rules. Let's say you got divorced as a non believer, you were non Christian, you got divorced. And now you're still single and you got married. The fact that you became a Christian doesn't mean, oh, let's start fresh now. Let's just wipe everything clean and start fresh. doesn't work this way. This rule applies to you whether you're a Christian or non-Christian. This is where the Christian Mission Alliance stand. And I believe this is to be the truth based on God's word. But how about abuse? This is now, when you get to the nitty-gritty and the practicality of this, this is tough. How about abuse? Uh Now, hear me out. Abuse is not a ground for divorce. Jesus is pretty clear. The same Jesus who said, No one comes to the Father except through me. The same Jesus said, No divorce except for sexual immorality. If we're gonna hold Jesus, if we're gonna take him at his word, then we're gonna take him at his world all his word. You guys are with me? I'm not saying that a spouse in an abusive marriage should remain in that marriage, but you separate. If your husband is physically abusive, if your wife is physically abusive, Whatever the case is, then you separate the marriage. The abusive spouse can go live by themselves. Nobody need to put up with that abuse. But the, the spouse who's being abused need to pray and seek God till their abusive spouse can repent and the mass, the marriage can be saved. You guys are with me? So don't put up with an abusive spouse, no question about it. But the fact that your spouse is abusive doesn't absolve you from doesn't allow you to get divorced and get remarried. Oh, you know, I turn, he turned out to be abusive. Therefore, I'm going to find another man. Sorry, it doesn't work this way in God's kingdom. You guys are with me? So, point is, when you make a vow to someone to get marry them or if you're married or whatever, then this is extremely serious. And there's a lot of rules that in the scripture that commits that. The idea is the marriage is permanent. Marriage is not something you can do temporarily or explore about it and then figure out if this is for you or not. You made a vow, you made a vow. You're committed to that person till you die in one way or short or form. Amen? Amen. Harsh teaching, but it's God's teaching. Amen? This is the standards for the New Testament. Let's go quickly through the other um, uh, options here. In oath, Jesus said, again, you have heard it is said to the people long ago, do not break uh, your oath, but fulfill what you have vowed to the Lord, but I tell you do not swear an oath at all that's the new standard in the in the Christianity in the kingdom of God either by heaven for it's God's throne by earth because it's his footstool for Jerusalem because that's God's city and do not answer by your um, do not swear by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black all you need is to say simply yes or no anything beyond that comes from that evil one in that time, the Jews understood that if you swear by God, then you're obligated to fulfill that vow or that oath. But if you swear anything without mentioning the name of God, like his, his seat, his city, or anything like that, then you're not as obligated. You can, you can play with that. Jesus is saying, in the, new, in the kingdom of heaven, don't swear at all. Your word should be trustworthy. You say yes, you say no, and that's it. And people should rely on your word and, and just take it and know that you're a man or a woman of your word. And you're going to yeah. do what you have promised you're going to do. You don't need to swear. You don't need to confirm that at all. Amen? Yeah. This is the way Christians should live their life. And I tell you, this is one of the things that like Christians really need to imply this, right? We need to really live by these rules. Just your word should be reliable. You say you're going to do something, didn't do it eye for an eye and then tooth for a tooth. Now also Jesus saying here you have heard it was said eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So the idea of that concept in the Old Testament is to limit retaliation. So if someone with Pluck somebody's eye, whether on purpose or not. God is saying you should not be moved so much with anger to the point that you go out and kill the person, but only an eye should be for the eye. You guys are with me? So the idea here is limited retaliation, a tooth for a tooth, eye for an eye. If somebody does you wrong, don't go and just ruin everything about them because they have done something wrong, but give them limited (coughs) retaliation. (coughs) But jesus said that's in the old testament in the new testament jesus is moving from limited retaliation to non-retaliation you guys are with me he said in the new testament you have seen god's forgiveness you you tasted the forgiveness of god and because you have tasted such a great forgiveness you should be able to give forgiveness to those who sin against you or even try to misuse you you guys are with me having said that that doesn't mean that a christian should be a mat and everybody in that world can trap on you because you're a christian you guys are with me you should forgive and you should show grace all the time but you do that out of out of grace Not because you're obligated and because everybody's just trembling on you because you're a christian you guys are with me jesus himself when he was slammed slapped during his um during during the sanhedrin when he was brought before the high priest and one of the soldiers slapped him jesus said why do you slap me what have I done wrong Jesus didn't say this is the same Jesus who say if somebody slap you on your right hand turn the other one Jesus didn't say oh great you slap me on this one take this one too Jesus didn't do that right because the fact that he that you and I just like Jesus should show forgiveness to those who do, do wrong to us or even try to misuse us and abuse us doesn't mean that you should be mad and be used by anybody in this world amen amen now love your enemies this is the last number six you have heard it is said love your enemy uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i tell you this is like look at i mean the the words of jesus is is mind-blowing and that no wonder the people were just so blown away but i tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children, look at this, this is the key. Why should we love our enemies? Here it is, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He's in drain to the righteous on the unrighteous and the righteous. <coughs> in other words, Jesus is saying this and actually let's read verse 46 and then uh, dig deeper a little bit. If you love those who love you, <coughs> what reward will you get? Are not the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, uh, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, because your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus here is contrasting kind of like two groups of people. Our Heavenly Father, on one hand, versus the pagans and the tax collectors and the sinners. And he's saying, our Father who's in heaven, he let his rain shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He let his uh, sun shine on those whom he like and those whom he doesn't like because of how they live their lives. And that may be the answer why we wonder, like, why is it going good with those who don't love Jesus? Why is the cheaters and the manipulators and those who, like, do everything wrong, still things are going well with them? You know why? Because God loves his enemies. Amen? God is not going to command us to love our enemy when he's not. The point that Jesus is making here is this. God does not discriminate when it comes to his love. He said, those who discriminate are the tax collectors and the pagans. They they love those who have, whom they have affection with and hate those whom they don't have any, anything in common with them. And Jesus is saying that you and I should live our life the same way God conducts him, himself, not the way that sinners conduct themselves. Amen? We should show no partiality when it comes to love and respect. Whether people like you back or don't like you back, you need to love them anyways. Amen? And then he said this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is not saying that you and I can at some point attain the level of perfection it's not just not going to happen at least for me it's not going to happen you guys are with me the context here is loving other people and jesus say when it comes to that you need to conduct yourself in a perfect manner just like god is perfect in that in that he let his sign and his rain shine and come down on those that are righteous and those who are unrighteous you guys are with me so when you go out, just love and respect everybody, even those who disagree with you, who don't like you. Just love and respect because we are commanded to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and um, be good to those who are not being good to you. Amen? Amen. It's just extremely important, but I, I, and we needed to go through this because you need to know what Jesus is teaching and the principles of living in. If you want to live in his house, that's his rules. Amen? Let's close our eyes and pray.